Good evening, Australia, and welcome to Under the Wire, your home for censored and suppressed information about vaccination and health. My name is Meryl Dory, and I'm here with a special guest tonight, a man I've known for something close to 30 years now, uh, Dr. Isaac Golden, joining us from Victoria. Dr. Golden, welcome. Thank you for coming on to Under the Wire. Thank you, Meryl, for the invitation, and it, it is a great pleasure. I think it's just over 30 years, actually. Wow. Uh, but it's, it's been a long, long time. It has. It has. You were one it of really the first people been. I've met in this area. So, yeah, that's just Well, amazing. I can say exactly the same to you. You were one of the first that I met. <laughs> and it's been a while. So, so yeah. talk to me, Isaac, about how you started with this. Now, you did not start out being a homeopath. You are a homeopath now, but you did not start out with homeopathy. How did you start your career? Well, I, uh, my first university training was in uh, financial accounting theory and economics, company finance. And I did a number of financial jobs. My dear old dad departed many, many decades ago. He had a, uh, a finance company and I was planning to take that over and in fact I ran the whole thing when I was 16 because he ended up being very unwell being in hospital in Canberra wow. uh, we were in that part of the world but uh, and I lectured in financial accounting and company finance at uh, ANU and Uni of New South Wales briefly and but basically I really got into this area I mean I've always loved natural health and I was you know, for, for someone who was uneducated in it, I was uh, aware of diet and things like reflexology always, you know, were very nice things to do. And I was a very orthodox person in many ways, not always, but many ways, health-wise. And I used to vaccinate my own children. And one of them was vaccine injured. And so this would have been uh, late 70s. And so I stopped uh, vaccinating and started trying to research and someone you would have known back then the late professor robert mendelson yes he was about the only person who was writing material that ordinary people could access and i bought all his books i remember he came to australia on a visit and was attacked viciously by the ama um, but it it made me uh, look more deeply into the issue of vaccination. And because I love statistics from my economics training, the first thing I did was actually write to governments, health departments in Australia, the United Kingdom, America, and about three or four other countries, but those first three, the ones who replied. And so I collected the, the raw data from the governments on notifications and deaths from the various infectious diseases and also when vaccinations started against those particular diseases. And in the very early books that I published, I had all of those graphs and they showed quite unambiguously that some of the claims made about the effectiveness and the extent to which vaccines had eliminated certain diseases were statistically simply not true. And then uh, I was working, um, I was running a uh, uh, the, the books uh, for a, a construction company up in Queensland and then I moved down to northern New South Wales and I started studying natural medicine then and when I came across homeopathy because I first started with herbs and and uh, flower essences, nutritional medicine, etc., which I, I still love very much. Right. But when I came across homeopathy, I fell in love with it and decided that would be my career path. And uh, I first practiced um, in 90, late 1984 in Armadale in New South wow. Wales, uh, just before I moved down to Victoria. And um, I didn't have a very good training living remotely. I couldn't go to a good college. And when I moved to Victoria, I did go to a good college. But in the interim, I got some of Dr. Hunneman's original books. Um, and to my amazement, I read that he had used homeopathy back in 1798. 
to immunise against scarlet fever. Vaccines, by the way, were first used 1796. Right. And of course, uh, one was in England and he was in Germany. And so I decided uh, to actually provide for parents an option for those parents who were concerned about vaccination, uh, an option to use for their children. And I developed my first program in 1985. I've changed wow. it only a few times since then, but it's been going since then. Um, and it was not, I, I've never taken an anti-vax stance in the sense I believe that if people choose to vaccinate themselves or their children, that's their right, just as it should be everyone else's right not to if they uh, come to a, a, a conclusion based on looking at evidence and facts that they're concerned about it and that there may be options. So I basically uh, started collecting data um, in 1986 and I was very fortunate, um, a, a very dear friend now uh, and uh, a person I have great uh, admiration for, Professor Avni Sali, invited me to do a doctorate um, at Swinburne University. He had the integrative uh, College of Medicine there for a period of time and I took up that offer and mainly so that people who were experts in epidemiology and, and experts in medical research could look at the data that I'd been collecting, you know, finding flaws in it as right. well as helping me strengthen it. And uh, I got my doctorate there, uh, looking at the data from 85 to 2002. And then in 2008, I was really blessed. I was invited uh, and it was a it's a long story which we won't have time of tonight but I was invited by the Cuban government the Finlay Institute uh, one of the five scientific uh, bodies there in Havana to uh, be lead speaker at a conference they were running at the end of 2008 in Havana and I went there and they got me to get up and talk about my long-term research involving a few thousand people and you know I sat down and they got up and then they started talking about their research involving 2.2 million people wow. and their one wonderful example against leptospirosis in 2007-2008 and so I went back three more times to uh, to Cuba working with the government people there and uh, on their dengue fever uh, formulas, uh, working with Dr. Bracho, in, who was the vice president of Finlay, who ran their uh, their interventions, homeoprophylaxis interventions then. And we published quite a few articles together. Uh, things changed there in 2015. And so then I started to go to India, and I've been to India five times, mainly working with the, uh, the, the Institute uh, or the Central Council for Research in Homeopathy, which is part of the Ministry of Ayush, because in India they have a, an Orthodox Health Ministry, and the Ministry of Ayush is in effect the Ministry of Natural Medicine. And mm. I've learnt a lot there and collected a lot of data. So that's where I am these days. <laughs> well, let me take you back, Isaac. That's a fantastic summary. Um, when I first met you, you were working on your. Um, study comparing, I believe it was comparing the vaccinated. Um, well, not just comparing, no, sorry, you were following people who'd used homeoprophylaxis for their overall health, whether or not they had um, gotten the diseases yep. and um, what the outcomes were. And just for those who are just joining us, first of all, there's a lot of people making comments that they've used your uh, remedies for homeoprophylaxis. Oh. So I think you've got a lot of fans on right now. But homeoprophylaxis oh, is basically using homeopathy to prevent um, rather than just treat infectious diseases, infectious illnesses. Yeah. So you had a program that pretty well matched um, the the vaccination program. So if there was a measles, mumps, and rubella, you had a measles, mumps, and rubella. You had a chicken pox. Well, I don't know if you had a chicken pox, but um, a whooping cough and diphtheria. Yeah. Did, did you have chicken pox yeah. or no? Well... The, the bottom line is, Meryl, that we can immunise against any disease for which there's a vaccine and also for diseases for which there aren't vaccines. 
Now, when I started in 1985, I basically was looking at trying to match what the program was then. And of course, it was only half the size of what it is now. Yes. And so some of the changes that I've made to my program uh, over the years have have sort of moved away from trying to mimic the orthodox vaccination schedule. And so I don't have in my orthodox uh, or my main program today remedies for mumps, rubella uh, or chickenpox. And the reason why is because they're in healthy children, mild diseases, they're very easily treated homeopathically, mm. and there is evidence in orthodox literature that uh, people who get those diseases and they're well managed when they're infants have lower incidence of certain chronic diseases, particularly certain cancers, when they're adults. So I don't put those diseases in my program, but I always say to parents, when we're talking about it, if they really, really want to add them in, they can. And probably, you know, maybe three or four parents a year do, but it's only very, very few because yeah. most of the parents who choose to use what I can offer uh, tend to have the same sort of opinion that, you know, we don't need to be concerned about every infectious disease. You know, that these things should not be things that we're afraid of we, we should be aware of their level of seriousness. Different infectious diseases have different levels of seriousness, like um, meningococcal disease is without a doubt the most deadly and the most serious of all of the infectious diseases in Australia. Yeah. I mean, people can die within 24, 48 hours. And that, to me, is a totally different ball game to something like, say, rubella, which in a child, is the mildest of all infectious diseases. Many people who get it don't even know they've got it. The only real problem with rubella is in for pregnant women in their first trimester. And if a young girl gets rubella, the disease, in childhood, that's the best form of immunisation. It's better than homeoprophylaxis and certainly right. better than vaccination uh, because nothing is 100% effective. Uh, HP isn't just as vaccines are. The only thing we can guarantee with HP, there's nothing toxic in it. It's not going to do any chronic harm to the person. Yes. I mean, people do have, um, what do they call them, healing episodes? I forget. I've forgotten the, word, the term for it where you have a, a reaction. But it's, uh, what is it called, Isaac? I can't remember. I'm losing that name. Well, a, he well, a healing response is, response, is one yeah. way of talking about yeah. it. But basically, it's an energetic stimulation of the immune system. Now, the data I collected when I was doing my doctorate showed that 2% of doses attracted some sort of healing response. And generally, it was a 24-hour thing, uh, which said that, you know, uh, maybe a bit of a rash, runny nose, a bit of restless overnight. Occasionally, a few people had something that lasted a little bit longer. But in my instructions that come with the program, it basically says, if there's a problem you're concerned about, send me an email. I hardly get any emails. And the ones I do, I basically say, look, wait another 24 hours. If there's still a problem, let me know and it's fine. Yeah. Because we know that these things are not a toxic response. There's no aluminium in there. There's no formaldehyde. And there's no biological material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. There's nothing, actually. That's what homeopathy is about. So, <laughs> Well, if you send it to a lab, that's what they'd say. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so nothing can't be toxic. Mm. And But that's what I always say, Meryl, that the real point here is how effective are they? Because mm. there's no point in having something that's safe if it doesn't work. Exactly. And the evidence that I collected showed around 90.4% with very, very close confidence limits. I think it was around 87.3 to 93.4, something like that. So that confidence, the 95% confidence limits around the mean are very important. But then, you know, in 2019, I published two articles in peer-reviewed journals looking at three countries that used homeoprophylaxis in over 250 million doses. And 
mainly these were government agencies in those three countries and the average figures came between 86 and 90 percent so that's the key thing with hp unlike vaccines where some vaccines are very low and some can be certainly into the 90s the the average across all of the diseases with hp is very similar because they use a, a a rule or a principle of medicine, the principle of similars, mm. whereas vaccines are working quite differently. So these things are not an attempt to mimic vaccination. They stimulate a different part of the immune system. But for that reason, the results are very consistent. And that's why when people started using HP around the world for COVID, they were getting some very good results. Now, Unfortunately, it's been extremely difficult to get accurate readings uh, re-COVID because of the various political and right. suppressive things that are happening. But the first figures that came out of Cuba uh, back in around May last year, 2020, they had immunised uh, around 5 million people using uh, a formula a, a, that they use a combination of what's called nosodes and GE remedy. So using that approach, they'd immunised uh, over 5 million people. They compared the rates of COVID in that 5 million with the 6.5 million that hadn't been immunised in that way. And at that very early stage, they, they were getting 94% effectiveness. <laughs> now, wow. I would expect that that would have fallen as it got rolled out and in cuba now unfortunately um, it's a long story once again but the economics of it and the fact that they also make vaccines mm. and they're really really pushing hard with their vaccines we don't have really up-to-date figures from cuba but they were doing very well when they were initially relying on that method to begin with right what other countries do you know of that are using hp for covid are there any others well as countries as a whole the answer is no mm. uh, india for example they probably would have used the method on and look i'm guessing probably about 40 million people but when you've got the population of india that's a right. tiny percent uh, Mr. Modi, the Prime Minister of India, right at the beginning was taking the Remedy Arsenicum album really? as a prophylactic because the Indians uh, don't tend to use the same approach as the Cubans. The Indians use what's called a genus epidemicus approach, which involves just a single medicine. And that was the remedy that they'd chosen. But uh, Mr. Modi was using that. Uh, I mean, he's a lover of natural medicine. It was thanks to him that the ministry of Ayush came from being a, a subsection of the health department to be a ministry in its own right. Oh, yeah. And, I um, never knew that. I never knew that he loved um, natural medicine because I've always heard of him being oh, yeah. quite corrupt and, and in pharma's pocket. No. So that's fantastic. No, 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 no. No, he, he's, there are certain things with Mr. Modi that are not necessarily democratic, mm. let me put it that way, and I'm not an expert, and this is more to do with um, Hindus versus um, other religions. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, he's a meditator. He practices yoga every day. Uh, he has a great love for the traditional Indian medicines, uh, Unani and Siddha, uh, and, of course, Ayurvedic medicine. Mm. But the H in Ayush, uh, see, Ayush stands for Ayurvedic, Yoga and Naturopathy, Unani, Siddha, and the H is Homeopathy. So uh, Homeopathy is one of the major pillars of the, um, the Ayush system of medicine in India. And uh, they have a, an absolutely wonderful minister, a wonderful man. I've met him three times at conferences in Delhi, just briefly, uh, but I've heard him speak. And I mean, if we could have a health minister like that, <laughs> what a blessing it would be for this country. Unfortunately, we don't. We have Greg Hunt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, <Yes. laughs> let's say no more about that. So, so um, it is being used overseas in other countries. Um, I know that Brazil... On a small scale in yeah. many other countries. Mm. 
but not government-wide, not by governments. Right, right. Um, I I remember hearing Brazil had used um, a lot of homeopathic prophylaxis uh, a while ago. Are they using um, COVID in in Brazil, a COVID HP? Well, once again, it's amongst usually the the better-to-do classes Mm. who have uh, private practitioners. So private practitioners are using it there, but the government as a government is not. But yes, you're right. On my webpage, for example, on the immunisation page, it cites an example from Brazil in 1988 against meningococcal type B. You know, that's the most serious disease in Australia. And the Cubans were the first country, by the way, to develop a vaccine against meningococcal B. Still in Australia people have to spend an extra $600 to get it. It's not part of the, the regular, the routine vaccine program, even yeah. though type B is the most common form of meningococcal. And uh, a university over there, Blumenthal, I think it's pronounced, uh, they gave HP to about 65,000 uh, children under the age of 15. There were about I think 30,000 who didn't receive anything. So they're all living communally in the same area. Uh, They therefore had a perfect control group. The efficacy was 95% after six months and 91% after 12 months. Uh, You know, and this was government uh, people doing the job through the university. So we can see this. There's been absolutely no vaccines that are showing that sort of efficacy, Um, not even measles vaccine, which we're told is quite high. I think they're about 92%, and the COVID shots are supposed to be 95%, but that's with um, not with uh, the real uh, efficacy, not the real... uh, Sorry, I'm losing my words here, but um, it is... I know what you mean. (laughs) It's only about 1% effective when you look at that. So... If you have uh, the actual... Well, yeah. Look, the, the thing is, with vaccines, as you know, over the years, um, what people get in trials is different to what you get in the real world. Mm. Now, you, you probably have heard this, but just recently, the new Prime Minister of Israel and the Health Minister of Israel have both come out and said that they're very, very disappointed with the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine. And Israel is one of the most highly vaccinated countries on the planet. And so now, instead of saying, well, look, can we look anywhere else? Is there anything else we can do besides this vaccinate or die sort of scenario? No, they're saying, oh, well, that means we'll have to have boosters. And we'll have to have probably at least one booster every year. Mm. So... This has been, to me, the tragedy of COVID, Meryl. It's been that in this country, and Australia is one of the most limited and restricted countries on the planet in terms of openness of medical information. I'm sure, I mean, some of your listeners I know won't be surprised with that, but I'm sure that if there is any sceptics tuning in, hello, uh, (laughs) they may be surprised uh, to to know that this is really one of the most restrictive countries in terms of open and honest dialogue about health. And we have not been allowed to know about proven, safe, natural, forget about homeopathy, integrative medicine doctors in other countries around the world using things as simple as vitamin D, quercetin. Now, People talk a lot about ivermectin, uh, hydrochloroquine. But, I mean, one of the main reasons that they're effective is because they're zinc ionophers. And because they're drugs, they have a potential downside, like every drug does. But a natural herb like hisidin is a zinc ionopher. So we have options for both prevention and treatment that are not some rat bag or some weird old bloke living in the bush. These are proven. They've been tested over decades. They're being used now by orthodox doctors in other countries, and we're not allowed to know about them. And we get, you know, people here 
basically saying, like Andrews, the Premier in Victoria the other day basically said, was asked about, oh, we'll lose some of the parts of the, the state that have never had a case of COVID. Do they need to be under a full lockdown? Oh, well, you know, if we don't do this, we've got no choice. And if we don't do this, we'll be in lockdown until everyone's vaccinated. Well, that's, and that's a wonderful summary yeah. of what they're aiming to do. Well, that's what the Prime Minister has said. He said that we're going to continue locking down until we get 80% of the population vaccinated. And this is what I mean, Isaac, that, that there is nothing scientific or even health-based in these policies. It's all political because it is openly admitted that these shots, I won't even call them vaccines, that these shots cannot prevent you from getting an infection with COVID. They cannot prevent you from spreading COVID to anyone else if you are infected. And they cannot prevent you from dying from COVID. The only endpoint that was used in the pre-licensure, and I can't even call it that because it's not licensed, but in the pre-release trials was mild reduction of mild symptoms. And they said, well, in as far as reduction of mild symptoms goes, there was an effect. So, if we know that it's not going to stop you from getting infected, spreading the infection or dying, what is the point of forcing people to take this shot? Why are we even, you know, emphasizing that people should receive these shots when there are, as you said, so many other valid, effective alternatives um, to this? Now, um, are people in Australia able to access HP for covid and if you don't uh, want not to go there, sorry. Not not according to the TGA. Mm -hmm. So uh, no one is allowed to talk about treatment or prevention options. Uh, no one can offer them. Um, and some doctors have already been penalised by APRA uh, for offering what they believe are proven and tested uh, things like ivermectin, for example, mm -hmm. or hydrochloroquine, uh, but integrative medicine doctors who may be offering vitamin D to elderly people. I mean, we had um, a significant spike in deaths in aged care uh, facilities down here. And of course, we know that the statistics, knowing whether a person died with COVID or from COVID yeah. are questionable, but the honest results are probably somewhere in the middle between none and everyone. So let's just say we take the middle. Deaths could have been prevented just by making sure that those elderly residents in the aged care homes, their vitamin D levels were adequate. Yeah. And that would have cost virtually nothing. The only side effect that would have been there would have been they also would have had a better immunity against the flu and other uh, circulating viral diseases. So what possible downside could there be if there is not uh, some sort of agenda? And the agenda, I believe, and, and look, I don't know all the story, Meryl, and I don't think anyone will for maybe 10 years when the history is starting to be written. but And even then we might not know the full story. Right. But I certainly believe that there is and has been since 2005 a very clear international agenda to marginalise natural medicine around yeah. the world. And it was picked up very strongly in Australia in 2013 with the formation of a, a pro-pharmaceutical lobby group, the Friends of Science in Medicine, <laughs> who uh, should be called the Friends, yes, the Friends of Pharmaceuticals in Medicine, because yeah. that's all they are. They certainly aren't scientific. Uh, but unfortunately, these people, they infiltrated the NHMRC and led to some dreadful, corrupt uh, research findings there, which are currently being... Uh, examined and have been for years by the Commonwealth Ombudsman um, and they've caused rulings from health departments uh, which are totally unscientific mm. and I'm, I know that this is part of an agenda which if they're not leading they certainly would be cheering on and unfortunately you know most politicians have no idea what's going on 
and the the people leading the medical advice that they say that they're relying on are just simply refusing to honestly and openly discuss with the Australian people and their political masters the options that we have available. We could do such wonderful things in this country. You know, if only we had politicians who were, were courageous and were intelligent. Yeah. And that's our problem. We don't. I agree. Um, Isaac, is it true that it's no longer possible to study homeopathy in Australia at university level? Uh, yes, at the moment. Uh, it's not illegal. It's just that there have been so many attacks on it that none of the big providers uh, have found it worth their while running a degree course, which is very expensive mm. to get accredited and then run. Uh, there are other options. There's an advanced diploma course, I believe, being run by a college that I'm not familiar with, but I heard about it some time ago. And there are numbers of people studying uh, to become practitioners, but they're accessing uh, study mainly from England uh, and there's a couple of other colleges internationally that are accepted by the Australian Register of Homeopaths. But, yeah, it's a very sad thing. I actually sold the college I had uh, in 2008. Um, I had an advanced diploma course, which at that time certainly was able to accredit practitioners. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very tough uh, at the moment, Merrill, and... Um, you know, it's not just homeopathy, but they've, I think we've copped more of the flack than most of the other natural modalities. We're the low-hanging fruit because, yeah. as you said before, nothing is there. Yeah. And therefore, they can say, well, how can nothing do anything? You know, they don't believe in, in energy. They don't understand we're more than just a physical mechanism that you can pick up a telephone call from someone you've never heard of or known before and they can give you bad news and you can get a heart attack or your hair can turn white or you know collapse in in shock that's it so there are many more stimuli on the planet than just biochemical ones and even in science i remember very clearly maybe 10 years ago reading an article in the new scientist magazine um in australia about a study that had been done on solutions and it wasn't it wasn't um, a health study it was another type of solution and what they were doing was they were trying to determine what the the least um, you would have of the original item in the solution for it to still work. And what they found was they would get down to the submolecular level and it became more powerful. The actions of that solution became more powerful than when the actual substance was in it. And I remember they said at the time, well, this might actually <laughs> explain why homeopathy works, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they just discounted well, their own findings. <laughs> Actually, in, in science, there's something called the Arndt Schultz law, which talks about, you know, something which is in massive amounts will just overwhelm the system. When you reduce the amount, it'll have a minimal effect. But then if you further reduce the amount, then the, the curve goes up again in terms of the effect. <laughs> so I don't think that they believe the Arndt Schultz law exists below the molecular level. But now, of course, they're starting to take electron microscopic photos on a, uh, you know, a, a, a submolecular level showing in homeopathic potencies, there are things there, there's mm. something there, nanoparticles, presumably, I mean, look, you know, well beyond my pay grade. And but when I'm uh, pushing up daisies somewhere or fertilizing the soil, some bright person will come along and, and discover it. And then they'll say, yes, we've discovered it works. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone will pay them to suppress it because there's just no money in it. So <laughs> no, someone will pay them to patent it and, and make a lot of money. <laughs> now at, you're talking. At a very now inexpensive. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, a thousand dear. percent markup. <laughs> All right. So you've been struggling for a long time with this and a lot of people I mean I am watching the comments and we have one after another after another talking about how effective your uh, HP remedies have been and uh, I know that all around the world there are people using homeoprophylaxis uh, out of all of this what's what I take away is that 
our options are being removed, our our choices are being taken away. Um, we we should, it, unless something is killing us, and if it's killing us, it's still our choice whether we take it or not. I mean, people still smoke, people still drink to excess, yeah. people still do drugs, and you don't see the government saying, oh, we're going to have to stop selling cigarettes, we're going to have to stop selling um, alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah, they're, they're not going to say that. But, you know, they're going to say you can't use homeopathy, you can't use naturopathy, um, you can't use cannabis, you can't use any of these uh, remedies that have, you know, shown the test of time at, to be very effective. So you have been fighting against this for a very long time. And a few years ago, you decided to uh, take this fight to Canberra, basically, you you started oh dear. a political party, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> yes, uh, back in two thousand fifteen, uh, along with uh, five other people, started the Health Australia Party, and it's interesting, you know, Merrill, because I mean we've really, really tried to be a true centre party, not left wing, not right wing. Uh, we've We've probably said less than we could have in, on many occasions, to our detriment. Uh, I mean, we were the first party, uh, registered political party, to oppose the no jab, no play legislation. We yeah. were the first registered political party to oppose mandatory vaccination. But uh, And we're not an anti-vax party. We very clearly have a belief that if people choose to use that form of medicine that is their right. The only thing that we have concerns about with vaccination really is that people, we believe, also have the right for the truth. And this is the reason I really started uh, the party because we could see then back in 2015 that these attacks on natural medicine options for people were ramping up really, really strongly and uh, something had to be done. And I still believe the only effective way to make change happen is to uh, do it through the ballot box. But the problem is that, um, you know, and this is once again the democratic right of the people who, found, who formed these other parties. Other parties came out with strong anti-vax uh, positions that were more clearly anti-vax than us, and and uh, I'm I'd like to think I'm very good friends with Michael, the, one of the uh, senior people in IMOP, who I have a great respect for, um, and we knew that as soon as that party was formed, we'd lose a whole lot of members, and we did, and then other parties have come out. It's just a shame, in a way, that um, we we couldn't have harnessed the the not not to do with vaccination but the the people in australia who use natural therapies because when you look at it in terms of people getting vitamin c from the health food store or the pharmacy over 70 percent of australians use some form of natural medicine yeah. over 40 percent of australians actually see a natural therapist now we only needed a quarter of that number only 10 percent to vote and we would have had as many people in Parliament as the Greens. And gee, what a difference that would have made because mm -hmm. the Greens have been unfortunately next to useless mm -hmm. uh, in this area, that. I'm afraid. Yeah, worse than that. They and, used I mean, to be we, supportive. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, we have uh, policies that are very strongly pro-environment uh, because, I mean, the chemical pollution of our planet, external and internal, is a tragedy. Now, the Greens talk about the external pollution of the palate of the planet. What about the internal pollution of the people? Mm. We're concerned about both. But I've got to be honest with you, it's been, um, it's not, not never been a waste of time, but it's been a very disappointing road. And with the changes that have been made to the electoral laws, uh, yes. it's going to be almost impossible unless you can get about a 10% primary vote in, say, the federal election, there's no way you're going to be elected. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're struggling, to be honest with you. And uh, um, 
I've actually now started, I've been involved in a group that's now starting a chapter of children's health defence that Robert Kennedy uh, has founded so successfully in America and uh, probably more of my little available free time is going to go to that. It's going to be a long, slow process as well. Mm. Um, but we've had some very good news recently in terms of uh, being able to uh, get the legal work done so that uh, it can be made formally a, uh, a chapter. And then we'll see what happens. But That's fantastic. I mean, I, I think Kennedy in America has been a, a shining light, along with a few other people around the planet, uh, to stand up and and speak out strongly the thing i love about what he does is that it's not you don't have to go down a rabbit hole to go along with him yeah what he talks about what they publish is evidence-based uh it's realistic it's not fanciful it doesn't rely on conspiracy theories and I know I got uh, attacked by someone, a member of the Health Australia Party for using that term. Oh, it's CIA stuff. You'd be used to that. But, I mean, we there doesn't need to be a conspiracy. Let's leave the word theory out. Uh, or rather, do it the other way around. There doesn't need to be a theory. Yes. Let's leave... Con you know, we we don't need to theorise. There's so much evidence... Conspiracy ...about what's facts. happening and what needs to be done. That's right. Yeah. That's well, just right. facts. Just yeah, facts. Just facts. Yeah. Now, I, I want to speak with you just for a second about your um, discussion about being anti-vax, because believe it or not, the AVN is never anti-vax and never has been. I know. Even though we are yeah. labeled that way, um, we yeah. also believe that, hey, we don't have any stake in what you do. We want to make sure that you have the information to make an informed choice and that you are never forced to do anything one way or another. It should always be your yeah. decision. But it doesn't matter. You, I'm looking around the world now and seeing these very, very pro Vax doctors, um, Byron Bridal in, in Canada and uh, Peter McCullough in the United States and all of these doctors who have never questioned vaccination and they're just coming out now questioning the COVID jab yeah. and they are being labeled yep. anti-vaxxer. And it's because that label paints a picture in people's minds of, um, of exactly a, a negative, a negative picture in people's minds. Yeah. And the, the uh, Webster's Dictionary in the United States recently, in the last six months, actually changed the definition of anti-vaxxer to someone who opposes oh. mandatory vaccination. So for the first time in my life, I am calling myself an anti-vaxxer, and that's because I absolutely 100% oppose uh, mandatory vaccination. Yep. I think you do too. <laughs> so in that context, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, in that context. Now, also with the political uh, party issue, you're right. Um, it will be almost impossible for a, a small party, a minor party, to get into office because of what is happening with the changes to the way the rules run um, in elections. Yep. But also there is. Uh, a, a problem with splitting of the votes. You said that when IMOP came in, they took votes away from you, but there's so many pro-choice parties that have come out recently. And what I'm wondering is, what would the effect be if all of you combined your forces if you and um, IMOP and Monica yep. and all these other parties, Great Australian Party, if you all just combined your forces and formed one major, we believe in health minor and human party. rights party. <laughs> a major minor party. Yeah, major minor party. <laughs> Makes me think of Catch-22, sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, how would that work? Would you know, that be? You know, Meryl, since I've been doing this with Health Australia Party, I think there have been five or six attempts to do that. And they've all failed very quickly. Uh, not only had the people thinking about them not really considered all of the ramifications, but the greatest problem of humanity struck ego. Mm. And this is the thing. 
Um, and now, you know, I love talking with Michael from IMOP because there's no ego there. Um, it's true. But, it, you know, the, the problem is, um, uh, the, uh, I, um, I don't want to mention any other names, but and I won't. Mm. Uh, it's not appropriate. But that's been the major problem. Yep. Now, we also have to be realistic. Up until COVID, uh, 90, probably 4%, of children, preschool children, were vaccinated. Yeah. Now, that means that probably about three, maybe the most 4%, but probably 3% of parents of, um, of pre, uh, preschool children opposed vaccination. The other half were probably people who just didn't get around to it or couldn't be bothered or didn't know about it because of language issues, etc., now, it's grown significantly, the percentage, because of COVID, because adults have suddenly thought, oh, damn, this is not just affecting our kids, it's affecting us, potentially. Yeah. And so people are actually thinking more about it. That may sound a bit rude and cynical, but it's actually, statistically, it's, true. it's, it's true. actually true. Yes. Um, but, but the percentage, if everyone who opposed mandatory vaccination or any mandatory medical interventions, not just mm. um, vaccination. I oppose any mandatory medical intervention yep. following on Nuremberg trials of the Nazis, you know, after the Second World War. That's where this, you know, the right to be able to make informed consent for any medical procedure, that's where that came about yep. in from the Nuremberg trials. Now, you know, to me, that should be inviolable it it should not be allowed to be touched but that's exactly what they're doing although to be honest with you uh, i think it's quite possible we may end up without mandatory vaccination in law but mandatory vaccination in practice in terms of the penalties they'll impose on people who are not vaccinated just as they've done with the no jab no play so you don't have to get your preschool children vaccinated, but for parents who both have to work and have to get mm. uh, a child into, you know, a government accredited preschool five days a week, and the only way they can afford it is to get a government, uh, uh, you know, credits uh, for that, they don't have a choice. They don't have, in reality, a genuine choice. So getting back to your point about what if everyone combined, I still don't know how many we'd get. You might get 10%. It's possible. Um, but unfortunately, to get everyone on, uh, on a sufficiently similar page, the real other problem is with combining a whole lot of small parties is that whilst all of them may agree on one point, they may have totally opposite points of view on mm. a different point, like, for example, a racial point immigration things like that and they sure. can be dreadfully important things and so how is the combined party going to make a decision on a point which is where different parties have completely opposite positions that's the other practical difficulty yeah i see it's that. a wonderful idea yeah it's a problem and when you think you know the, the, the way around it go ahead go ahead yeah, sorry Finally, just finally, the one way around it is if the voters for their particular party are clever enough, even though there's no preferencing deals that can be done anymore federally and in most states, apart from at the moment Victoria and WA, if the voters themselves were clever enough to make sure that they gave their first preference to the party they wanted, and then their subsequent preferences to the, in the order uh, from above down to the other parties that supported no mandatory medical interventions, mm. that would still have a very powerful effect. But unfortunately, without being able to vote one above the line in the Senate and being preferences being automatically directed, it's going to be a big ask. As long as I've been able to vote in Australia, my Senate vote has always taken a good five minutes because I go from one yep. to whatever it is, 135. Yeah. And I always put Labour, 
liberals and greens dead last in that order. <laughs> and considering I used to be a greens member, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Greens are dead last as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, I do it's think a people have to learn. Ah, oh, since Bob Brown yeah. left the party, it's just yeah. not been the same at all. So no. I um, always used to vote green as well, uh, you know, and to me, it, I thought that they would have been natural allies of us because of their concerns about big pharma, big chemicals, etc. Yep. It's the opposite. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Bob Brown was, was the person who raised, who brought in the amendment that we got passed in federal parliament in 2000, oh, sorry, in 1998 for conscientious objection. He was the one who actually introduced that amendment for us. So he yeah. was on side. But when um, yep. Di Natale came in, Natale. yeah, that was horrible. That was so, yeah, yep. um, it's, it is very sad. And when you think ego... I mean, I can't think of any bigger egos than there are in Labour and, and, and um, the Liberal parties. I mean, they're walking, talking Absolutely. egos for the most part. How <laughs> do they manage to keep it together? I just don't understand it. Um, but I think still, yeah, that's probably <laughs> it. We don't have enough of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, that's really, really, really sad. But um, anyway, I, I, I don't give up hope. I do think that we have... A chance. I mean, we have some people in federal parliament now. We have Craig Kelly. We have, um, believe it or not, Pauline Hansen and Malcolm Roberts are doing amazing things. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, just, you know, George Christensen and um, I forget his name, the one who just recently left the party, but yeah. And they're names that I would never, ever have thought of as being people i would have said nice things about some years ago <laughs> so to be honest said, pauline hansen was a big help when we were in federal parliament in 1998 yeah. she and, and that was when one nation okay. had just started she was a very big wow. help at that time so Fantastic. i've always had a soft spot spot in my heart for her um she okay. she says what she feels and she sometimes gets in big trouble for it but <laughs> but she also believes in choice and in rights so i think that's a really good yeah. thing but uh well this is the thing meryl our, our democracy this is the thing that our what really democracy our what in this country <laughs> democracy oh it doesn't compute <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to look at my camera and I'm not looking at you. <laughs> sorry, I had to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You've made the point, I think. Well, you know, we have a number of pillars in the Health Australia Party. So healthy democracy, healthy society, both of those have gone. Mm. Uh, healthy economy, well, that's that's the, the best that they've done is with the economy. Um you know, but healthy people uh, also, that's been a, a real problem. Uh, the only area, really, I think that they've managed to follow some sensible economic principles is the economy. And I say that in terms of the federal party because they haven't repeated the mistakes of the 1930 depression where governments, when the, when the economy fell flat, they contracted. And that was the worst thing that could possibly be done. And it made the depression in the 1930s much worse. What they've done, they've gone out and they've spent. But the problem is they've spent billions of dollars and wasted it on, like Morrison came out some months ago boasting, we're going to spend $6.8 billion on vaccines. Now, oh, I can waste. tell you right that. Now, now, no, but it's going to be more than that now. Mm. That's before there all these extra lots they've bought. You know, we could have immunised the whole of Australia by May 2020 for about $200 million. And there would have been no side effects. There would have been no negative impact on long-term chronic illness. We could have repeated the whole thing for another $200 million. I mean... The, the difference would have been immense to our economy as well as the rates. Now, it wouldn't have stopped COVID because nothing will stop it. There's no vaccine on the planet that's going to stop it. And, you know, you can lock down people till they die. But that's what's happening. Yeah. When you look at the suicide rates, 
you know, that's the tragic stories coming out, which our useless media in this country are, are keeping from people. Yeah. You know, the, the it's just it's just so tragic. Uh, the waste that has happened and the unnecessary deaths and harm that's being caused. And the, the children, you know, I know we're getting close to the end, but the, the thing I want to say more than anything, Meryl, is that I'm so concerned about the children. I mean, we're seeing from overseas yes. evidence about how the Pfizer vaccine is harming teenagers. And are our people here really going to ignore all that evidence and allow our children to get these vaccines because the children will be damaged and that'll be not for a few years but potentially for decades and decades for the whole of their lives with some of them yes it's a it's a frightening prospect and um, they are and we have to stand up mm. yeah they are ignoring it yeah. the media has become the enemy of the people yeah. i believe and Yep. Uh, the, all of this information is out there. And you know what? More and more people in Australia know it. And that's why we've got less than 20% who are double jabbed, uh, because they simply will not take the shot. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen now that there are more and more corporations that are saying they're going to force people to take the shot in order to continue working there. Um, there is a boycott of SPC. There's a new boycott just started for Woolworths. Um, the construction industry, there's a barrister who's just stepped forward who's going to take cases for people who are being told they have to be uh, given the shot in construction. And there are already cases starting up for people in the um, in the health industry, the nurses and doctors who are being told they have to take a shot. Uh, I have to wonder if... The governments around the world have just pushed this that little bit too far so that they are going to have a backlash. They have no idea how big it's going to be. And I'm really hoping yep. that's the case. I really am hoping that's the case. And you're right, Isaac. If we had used HP instead of, or in addition to, if we had offered people an option to use mm. HP and vitamin D and quercetin, I don't know how you say it, sorry. Um, but, <laughs> <Neither do I. laughs> but, but if we had offered them the option, if we had been using natural therapies in parallel with uh, drug-based yeah. therapies, our health budget would be a fraction of what it is right now. The health status of the people would be way, way, way higher than it is. And we would have a country that was not in the kind of debt that it's in right now because our health economy is what's actually dragging the country down more than anything else. The amount of money yep. that we spend on drugs, vaccines, surgeries, doctors, and all of this. In addition to the cost of the shot, um, each one of those tests that is being given costs $200. So we are spending tens of millions of dollars every day on a test that the Centers for Disease Control has admitted cannot distinguish between COVID and influenza. So we're throwing more money away on that, and that's not part of that yeah. six million, six billion dollars. And if I can add one thing to what you've just said, which I totally agree with, it actually isn't too late. Mm. All we need is for enough politicians who are prepared to think independently to realize that, okay, let's say that 20% of the population are not going to comply willingly with what they want and therefore they'll be seen and they'll be demonized as a, a source of infection even though we know that vaccinated people can still transmit the disease and in fact there's some interesting scientific stuff coming out saying whether or not they may be actually super transmitters more than the yeah. the unvaccinated let's forget about that it still is time for politicians to say okay you have a choice you can immunize this way or you can immunize that way and that means, let's say the 20% of people who are not going to vaccinate, let's say 15% of them decided, yeah, look, we're happy to use the homeopathic option because it's there, it's safe, we know it's not going to do us any harm, and it will give us a significant level of protection, certainly comparable to that of the vaccine. We could still do that. Yep. It's not too late to do that. Now, I know they're not going to do it because... 
that would mean that people, even more than 20%, would then start saying, well, maybe we won't get the vaccine. And so <laughs> that might go down to only 60% vaccinated and 40, 35% covered in a different way. But given the history of the different way, it's over 200-year history. It's use in hundreds of millions of doses by government agencies in other countries. Why on earth would we not consider it? And, and wouldn't it be good would to be have saying. that control group to, to see Absolutely. the difference between the two of them, not just in the And if I'm totally COVID. wrong, they could prove it. Absolutely. Yeah, if I'm totally wrong, they could And prove you're not it. afraid to, but they're afraid. No, absolutely. Mm. The other good thing would be if they allowed integrative medicine doctors to treat people and to yes. prevent by using the simple, you know, vitamins, minerals, etc., that we know mm. can make a big difference to the severity of the disease, but then treat people who get the disease using methods that have been proven overseas to keep them out of ICU units in hospitals. So the hospital, we might get an increase in numbers. We don't have to be afraid of that. We, we can manage that provided those cases don't progress to the ICU and they don't need to if they're given prompt, appropriate treatment, which is currently available so that we do have options now, whether they'll, anyone will listen, who knows, I don't know, but the options are there. So if there's any politician out there listening or a, more likely someone who works in a, a, a political office from someone, please let your boss know yes. there are options, you know. And demand a conscience vote. Demand a conscience vote. And when the yeah. uh, when the uh, no vaccine passport bill comes up, demand a conscience vote on that as well. Uh, you know, vote yep. for the people who elected you, not the party or not the um, the 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 corporations that are sponsoring that party. We need to represent the people. In Australia. And vote for Australia's democracy. Absolutely. That's what I'd say. Absolutely. Because that's what it's about. Bring it back. I agree. Isaac, it's always such a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed our talk. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered before we finish up? I don't think so, Meryl. I hope we haven't spent too much time agreeing with each other. <laughs> Your audience has fallen asleep. Oh, no, no. It's From the number of comments, they are not falling asleep at all. <laughs> okay, that's They're good. loving it. <laughs> it was it was really was a pleasure to talk with you again after all this time. And I hope Thank we can you. do it again in the before the year's out, maybe. I agree. I agree. Let's <laughs> and we see that. what happens. Yeah, and hopefully be before the year is out, the people will take over and the government will have to back down on all of their threats. So, yeah, yep. that's what I pray. <laughs> all right, okay. Isaac. Well, you have Mine a good too. night. Thank you very much again. Yeah. Take Thank care. You. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I've always loved speaking with Isaac Golden. I just have one thing that I want to add before I finish up. It looks like my internet connection's suddenly gone really bad. Um, I'm hoping you're still getting this. Uh, we've had our website down for the last week. It's just come back up tonight, uh, avn.org.au. And, um, I was supposed to start this Wednesday on a virtual Vax bus tour for uh, COVID vaccine injury stories. But because the website was down, nobody was able to book in. So I am changing the date for the beginning of the COVID virtual Vax bus tour to the following Wednesday. So not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. If anyone out there would like to share a story of a COVID vaccine injury, please go to avn.org.au and click on the picture of the Vaxed bus on the homepage and select a day not this Wednesday, after this Wednesday. Um, sorry, hang on a second, and I will get the calendar up. It, because it's so uh, new, I haven't even gotten it. Choose a date after the 18th of August. So not before the 18th of August, and we will uh, schedule you in to tell your story on the Vaxed Bus Down Under Virtual Tour. If you're, as, if you're wondering why you should tell your story, 
Is it going to help you? Yes. The people who were on the vaxxed bus uh, when we went around Australia said that they felt heard, they felt believed, they felt listened to, they felt validated. Is it going to help other people? Yes, again. It's going to help other people because it will allow them an opportunity to see the other side of the vaccination issue against COVID. It will show them what can actually happen. So um, please, if you know anyone who's had a reaction or if you yourself has had a reaction, someone in your family, please go to the website. Thank you, Daryl, for sharing the website. Every time I see your icon, I think, oh my God, what a mouth. (laughs) But um, yeah, go to avn.org.au, click on the picture of the vaxxed bus, And uh, you will be able to book in from the 18th. For anyone who missed part of tonight's show, because I see what you've said, Eileen, um, this will be shown on Facebook until they take it down. But tonight it will be up on Rumble. If you go to Rumble, um, if you don't have our Rumble address, it is at the top of this page. And tomorrow it will be on BitChute and Brighteon. So you will be able to watch it on both of these channels. And we do carry Isaac Golden's books. He has a three-part series on homeopathic first aid. Um, homeo- homeoprophylaxis risks and alternatives is the book that talks about homeoprophylaxis. He has another book called Vaccine Injured Children. And Immunization Options is another one. And I feel like I'm missing one. But we have all of those books on our website. So if anybody would like to order any of those, you can find them on our website. And yes, uh, I agree. Homeopathy is amazing. I've been using it for over 30 years. Used it on my pets, used it on my children. It's been brilliant. So your mileage may vary, but I really have always loved Um, homeopathy and I've always loved Isaac Golden too because he as you saw he's an incredibly kind incredibly well-informed gentleman and um, he has worked very hard for many years on this subject so uh, without further ado I am going to say good night all and I will see you next Sunday on Under the Wire take care